Kia ora whanau. When I was at my previous church, which was Christ Church in Ellerslie, I don't know if you've ever seen it, it's the beautiful old church on Ladies Mile. Um, when I was there, I well, became the vicar, and they give you a bit of a rundown of the history of the church. And um, it's this beautiful old Kauri church that was built in 1883. And on the sides, they've got windows, beautiful stained glass windows. And on those windows are depictions of gospel scenes, and it's really beautiful. And at the back of the church, well, it looks like the back in this picture, which is what I'm going to explain, they had this alcove. See it there? And then they've got these pictures of Christ at the back. Now, that was originally intended to be this part of the church, okay? The church was built facing east, and you would have the Christ windows behind you and the Lord's table in front. Um, And that was how it was meant to be. It's a gorgeous church. Um, But as time went on and as congregations change, they needed to sell off part of their property, and that was the part that had the hall on it. So they needed to build a new hall where they could have tea and coffee and that sort of thing that was attached to the church building. But the only way to do this, because the way the church was oriented, was to attach it here and flip the church around the other way. So what they did was exactly that. So what they did is they just turned all the pews around and put the minister up the front here, which was the wrong end of the church. It was the one with pictures of the apostles in the background. And um, this might not seem like a huge deal to you, but it was a huge deal to some people. In a heritage church, uh, people become very, very attached to parts of the church. And unfortunately, the minister who was there, who made the final decision with the vestry to turn the church around to make it suitable for modern purposes, is now known as the vicar who split the church, which is so, so unfortunate. But what the story shows is that places in which we worship can become a problem or even an idolatrous thing in the lives of the worshippers if we don't keep our focus on who we worship and how we worship rather than where we worship. Today I'm going to talk about the primary place of worship in the Old Testament, uh, the temple, right? I'm going to give you a little biblical theology of the temple, apply what we've been learning, and I'm going to show you how Jesus fulfilled not only roles of prophet, priest, and king that belong to people, but also how he fulfilled the symbolism and meaning of an actual building today, Jesus can do amazing things, and that is one of them. So uh, as we get on to that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you gave your word to us for us to learn more and more about who you are and who Jesus is. And Lord, as we look at what true worship entails this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit transform each one of us as you minister to us. Amen. So, let's take a trip through the Bible. Let me take you back to where the Israelites are in the wilderness. So think back to the story. They've just been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Okay, and then they come out, 
and they are forming a nation. Okay, so they're trying to figure out how do we be the people of God? And they're wondering how do we include our worship in our everyday life? How do we include um, worshiping God in the formalities that arise in a nation? And God is teaching them how to be his people as they become the nation of Israel. So to do this, God makes a new covenant. It says in Exodus 19, and I'll read for you, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you're to speak to the Israelites. And then Moses was given the tablets with the Ten Commandments to take back to the people. And at this time, there are instructions given to the people of Israel. And part of those were to create a tabernacle. A tabernacle served two purposes. It was a tent that sat in the middle of the camp. It was a place where God's presence was known. Moses would go there to speak to God. And it was a place where people came to make sacrifices for when they didn't live up to the laws that God gave them so they could receive God's forgiveness and atonement. God also, at the same time, directed them to make something else, the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of Testimony. And um, this Ark was a golden kind of box, as you can see in the picture. And on the top, it had these angels, um, their cherubim with their wings spread out. And Lord, the Lord tells Moses that above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of Testimony, I will meet with you. So that is the primary place that God would meet with his people. And inside that golden box, there were the Ten Commandments. Okay, So you've got God's presence on the top and the way in which people were to obey God's laws on the inside. So this way, the ark symbolized two things, both sides of the covenant that God said before. God's presence and the people's obedience. Okay, does that make sense? Everyone's following? Yeah, so presence and obedience were the two things that the ark symbolized. And together, those two things make covenant faithfulness, both parties faithful to one another. So that, and all its significance, is enshrined in the tabernacle. Now, as the people settle in the land, eventually... The tabernacle is upgraded to the temple. Okay? It's more permanent structure um, and it's dedicated to God. But it continues the same symbolism and the same function. People come to the temple to seek God. You know, there are pilgrimages that now come to the temple. And people bring their sacrifices as the whole sacrificial system is flourishing um, to atone for where they didn't live up to their side of the covenant and receive forgiveness. Again, it's this presence and obedience the signs of covenant faithfulness. 
Now, the Israelites got to the point where, you know, a lot of them, I think, believed that God actually lived in the temple, which is why the temple was so important to them. Um, but despite this belief that had grown, you see in Scripture these little hints throughout um, another line of thought. So the Psalms and other books state that God's presence is in the heavens. I've got a bunch of references if you want them. Or that God's presence, God dwells in Zion. So it's not just the temple as we move on. And Solomon himself, when he dedicates the temple, gives that beautiful speech where he says, I know God, that we have built this for you, but you can't dwell in a temple. You are almighty. You are everywhere. There is no way that you could live here, but this is the symbol that we have made to you. Psalm 145 verse 18 claims that the Lord is near to all who call on him. So this idea of presence isn't just in this ark in the temple. It's getting a wider perspective where is God's presence? Can't be contained in the temple. Similarly, with sacrifice, despite the constant need to continually come back and sacrifice every year at least, um, there seems to be these contrasting scriptures that appear if we look at them that says actually God doesn't want sacrifice, which is a bit strange. Psalm 46 to 8 says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. And that piercing of ears refers to this image of servanthood. When someone became a servant um, in those days, they would pierce their ear with this thing called an awl, and that signified that that person was then going to serve their master. And the psalmist is saying that's what God wanted from his people, not the sacrifices, but that heart of servanthood. And similarly, Psalm 51, 17 states that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. So while the temple served as a place of worship, primarily symbolic of the covenant responsibilities of both parties, we see this development of the idea that it could neither house God, this omnipresent God, nor could it truly provide a system to atone for sin. So there's two things that it's set up to do. It can never fully achieve those things. The question is, what was missing? When I was growing up, my parents had this rule that we would eat dinner at the table every night. Okay, this might be a rule in your households too. Um, the sense of always having dinner at the table. Now, when you're a rebellious teenager, that is like the last thing you want to do. You just want to take your food and like go watch TV or go to your room and listen to like angry music. I don't know. Um, but it must have been the most draining thing for my mum to constantly force us all to sit at the table. And I know my dad always wanted to watch sport as well, so it wasn't just the kids. But my mum struggled, okay? And, like, I just remember, I was writing this down, and I remembered when she said, get back to the table! It's like this thing that just, like, triggers me now if I ever hear anyone say it, because I had it said to me, like, a million times. But the thing is, the table wasn't really about the table, was it? No. It was about relationship. What my mum really desired was for this close relationship between all of our family members. The table just happened to be the place where we could reconnect, where we could share about our days, where we could 
find out what's going on in each other's lives. But often the table was a place of conflict for us. And our relationships were never all that great, despite the fact that we were always at that table together. The table, despite what it symbolised for my mum, didn't magically bring about the thing that she truly desired. And while it was a means to an end, it wasn't the end in itself. It never achieved the relationships that she wanted. When Jesus came into the world, we see that he fulfilled the deeper meaning of the temple. As he lived and died and was resurrected, he fulfilled both sides of the covenant. So he fulfilled that sense of presence and then the obedience of man. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And if you look at the actual usage, it basically says that he tabernacled amongst us in case you didn't quite get the significance from the plain reading. Jesus was that presence of God with us that was promised. From that point on, Jesus, not the temple, was the true presence of God with his people. Repeat it just because it's incredibly important. Similarly, when he died in atonement for our sins, as Ralph spoke about a couple of weeks ago, taking upon himself that role of the great high priest of the people, he made a sacrifice, the last sacrifice, the only, final, forever sacrifice for sin of the people. Hebrews 10 11 to 14 says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Jesus was perfectly obedient. Jesus made up for our obedience in his obedient life. Presence and obedience, the two elements of the covenant, Jesus embodied that covenant faithfulness on both sides, God and man in one. So what do we make of the temple now, okay? What, is the, what do you do with it now? Well, it doesn't really matter, okay? The temple is now redundant, but you don't take my word for it. As we heard the reading before, when Jesus was speaking outside the temple to the Pharisees, he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he was speaking of was his body, Jesus is making this claim about himself that he fulfills that symbolic um, covenant faithfulness of the temple. He himself is now the center of worship for God's people. It's like I said a few weeks ago, God set up the temple, this physical object, so that people would understand Their hearts were readied. They got the concept of what would happen when Jesus finally came and what would happen spiritually when Jesus came. It was all part of God's perfect plan to set it up and then to achieve its fulfillment 
so that people would understand deep in their hearts what Jesus had done for them. The temple, it wasn't the end goal. The goal was always the relationship, the covenant relationship between God and his people. In John 14, 15 to 17, it says, If you love me, Jesus says, you will obey my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper who will be with you forever. That helper is the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it doesn't see or know him, but you know him because he lives with you and will be in you. So you see Jesus is really speaking covenant language here. He's taking on that covenant and saying it to us afresh. Obedience and presence. Our other reading, when Jesus was ministering to a woman in Samaria who he met at a well one day, he reveals to her this deeper reality. There was this dispute about which was the holy site that people should worship worship at between the Jews and the Samaritans, and they both thought it was their mountain and their temple. And if Jesus is indeed a prophet, like he's turning out to be in the conversation they're having, then he will have an opinion on this. So she decides to talk to him about this. And he says to her, as we heard before, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So Jesus makes clear here that true, genuine worship is spiritual. It's not dependent upon places, things, rituals. The place of worship doesn't matter. It's the way in which we worship that now and always has mattered. Jesus teaches that God's presence isn't in the temple, but through Jesus and his spirit, it's now in the hearts of his people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. So we see we had the temple, or the tabernacle and the temple, and then it moved to Jesus, and now it has moved because we are in Jesus as his followers into each one of us. When I was a kids and families worker in Beach Haven, my minister told me a story from her ministry and uh, her and her husband were part of the sort of revival movement in the 70s in New Zealand. And um, in the 80s, this thing came out of it, developed out of it. It was uh, these seminars called Life in the Spirit. Who's heard of that? Anybody? Yeah, some of you oldies. Um, (laughs) My mum was converted through that, so I'm very, very thankful and indebted to that ministry. Um, But one of the groups that they held, they had sort of small groups and they would talk through these things. And um, my minister was saying that she had this man who was, he was a vicar, and he'd been a vicar for 20 years. And he came along, and he, by the end of the course, this guy had just transformed. He was just on fire for Jesus. And, you know, they said, can you share with us, you know, through the course, what's been going on for you? And he said, look, I've been in church my whole life. I've ministered and done the work of God. I've talked about Jesus. And I've done work for Jesus 
for the last 20 years as I've led a congregation, but I never, ever had an intimate relationship with him the way I do now. And that man wept in front of them that day and was just so complete, so full of joy. And that is what true worship is. It's the relationship that governs true worship, not the motions we go through, not the places we gather. That is worshipping in the spirit. And so we've had spirit. What about truth? What is truth? That is a famous question asked by Pilate in the Bible, and it's answered by the events that follow Jesus' death and his resurrection. In John 14, 6, Jesus says that he himself is the truth. Scholar Rudolf Boltman said, Truth is not the teaching about God transmitted by Jesus, but is God's very reality revealing itself and occurring in Jesus. So it's not what Jesus tells everyone about God. It's that truth of God in Jesus, revealing itself through his life and death and resurrection. So what does true worship look like? One day in Galilee, the disciples left Jesus. He'd been teaching, and they went out on the boat, and he said, I'll catch up with you later. And they all go out into the boat, and at night falls, and it's a bit of a rough night, a bit choppy, so they're all up. And they see someone partway through the night in the darkness walking towards the boat. And they get so freaked out, they think it's a ghost, and they cry out. And Jesus says to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter obeys Jesus, and he takes courage, and he says to him, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. Peter then obeys again. He steps out onto the water. In this simple interaction, Peter trusts Jesus. He knows who Jesus is. He knows that he has the elements of creation at his disposal. He knows that he will not sink if he steps out onto that water because Jesus has got him. He asks Jesus to command him because he wants to follow what Jesus says. He wants to be obedient. And then he does. He follows through with that. True worship in spirit and in truth still requires obedience. It requires us to not give sacrifices, but to be living sacrifices, to put our self-centered thoughts and our egos aside and to be willing to do God's will for his glory. Worship isn't just singing songs and praying. Worship is doing everything for the glory of God. Everything that we do can be an act of worship. So to truly worship, we must embrace Jesus for who he is and trust in that. We need to trust Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our lives and seek to do everything in his name for his kingdom. The more obedient we are to Jesus, the more we can experience 
his presence in our lives. And I think I've heard that quite a few times in church. It's not an uncommon thing to say that you need to have Jesus as your Lord and Savior and it makes your life better. So I thought, how does that actually work out? What does it actually feel like? Um, And so I thought about myself and I thought when I step out and I put my life in Jesus' hands and I go into some situation and I just go, God, whatever you want to do with this person, particularly if it's in, I'm ministering to somebody, whatever you want to do, just lead me. I will do whatever you want me to. And in times like this, when I pray, it feels powerful. Sometimes when I pray, I don't really feel much, but when I really let myself go into Jesus' hands and I say, just use me, oftentimes those times are so powerful. It feels like something supernatural is happening that's just going through me between Jesus and that person. When I'm walking and working in line with God, things seem to fall into place is the other thing. I'll be thinking about something and soon I will have at least three things in my week that have all pointed to the same thing. And I'm just like, hallelujah, obviously I'm on the right track. This is awesome. And you'll notice sometimes that happens in our services where you know, someone will bring a reading like Mike's one this morning and it kind of fits in perfectly with exactly what you were going to say despite us never talking about it. Um, it often happens in our intercessions. It's just amazing. God is at work. And most of all, I feel valued as a person. I feel purposeful. And I feel pumped up, in the words of my girls. I love that. I'm just totally all over that saying now. But it's true. I feel pumped up. I walk around the house. I'm like, Chris, I had such great God moments this week. Like, it's been so cool. And I just want to talk about it and share it. That is how it feels when you're walking closely with God, when you're obeying Jesus and stepping out. So the question is, do you want to feel that way? Do you want more of God's presence in your life? So if we, we've done the past, we've done Jesus, we've done us, if we look forward to the new heavens and new earth at the end of the Bible story, Revelation 21 says, when it's talking about the new Jerusalem coming from heaven to earth, it says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Jesus is the center of our worship. And to worship in spirit and truth is to believe that he has fulfilled the covenant, that we have an eternal relationship with God forevermore. Maybe you crave those feelings of closeness that you know that you could have, that I've described today. And maybe that sense of purposefulness that I said is something that you really want in your life. Maybe the spirit is convicting you this morning, urging you to be all in, God doesn't want lukewarm worship. Don't settle for the temple when you've got the new temple living inside. You are the temple because you have Jesus living inside of you. Seek that intimate and life-giving relationship with God that we find through Jesus. So as the worship team comes up to play, I encourage you, as they do, come forward to the front for prayer. Be renewed in your spirit so that your life can be transformed for his glory. Step out of your boat and follow Jesus' commands. Amen.